the best rugby insight and analysis. OTB Sports Rugby. How, how would you argue if Johnny Sexton was to go and win a World Cup with Ireland and lead them to it that he wouldn't be the greatest? Subscribe to the rugby stream on the OTB Sports app now. OTB AM with Gillette. Get into your flow with the new Gillette Labs Razor with exfoliating bar. I'm delighted to say Jonathan Wilson is with us this morning. Jonathan, good morning to you. How are you? I'm very good, thanks. How are you? This uh, Liverpool game has taken on a very deep meaning after uh, what Klopp is saying and maybe a bit of misinterpretation around his post-match comments about needing to reinvent after the the Napoli game. Um, What do you expect from Liverpool tonight? Well, I think it's it's a hugely difficult game. I mean, Ajax are playing really, really well, so... Before anything else, they've got to go try and get three points. It's try and got try and got to try and get this Champions League campaign up and running. Uh, I think it's pretty difficult for them because they don't really have any players. You know, the the, the injuries have they've hit them to such an extent. It's not it's not as many other players can, can come in. Not, not a lot of things you can change around. And you you look at that side that, that played in Napoli last week, and maybe the fact they've had six days off um, that that you know, that that's given them in in a season when there's not much time. They have been presented with a bit of time to try and try and sort things out, and the fact they've got next weekend off as, as well now, um, it is sort of one game in a fortnight rather than one as a as a series of, of four in a fortnight. Um, but they, they've got to first and foremost got to try and find some defensive solidity, which, which they'd lost. Uh, but that comes from the compactness that Klopp was talking about, and the fact that the spaces between the, the forward line and the defensive line, which I think he would ideally like to see around about 25, 30 yards. Had, had 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 grown uh, to an extent where there's loads of space and Napoli could play their way through. And it's not just Napoli. It's not this is a one-off game. Napoli was a team who were really able to exploit that. But I think you saw evidence of that even against Fulham on the opening day of the season. So what is causing the compactness to not be compact anymore? Why does that happen? Well, I, I think we saw it in the pandemic season as well. I think this is you know the, the issues are quite similar. That suddenly we're seeing uh, Liverpool's defence looks incredibly ropey. And you're looking at Trent Alexander-Arnold saying, well, hang on, we were talking about this this kid as being potentially one of the great right-backs in the world. Uh, but actually, when he's put in defensive pressure, he's not great. Virgil van Dijk, who's been the best centre-back in the Premier League for three or four years, suddenly looks vulnerable. He's given away two penalties already this season. You get a run at him. But the point is, people are getting a run at them. They're getting a run in behind Alexander-Arnold. They're getting a run at van Dijk. It doesn't help Van Dijk. He's had three different partners, which again, like the pandemic season, they, they kept on chopping and changing and, and, and then he got injured as well. The, the injuries have meant they haven't had consistency there. But it's it's to do with, I mean, and it's very hard for me outside to know, it's either players are not responding in the way they, they used to, that they, they're, they're not putting in that physical and mental effort to enact the pressing systems. Um or it's a fatigue is set in and they're not able to do that. So whether it's a physical issue or a mental issue or some combination of the two, somehow those those very precise, very sophisticated pressing structures, which are so characteristic of Liverpool at their best, they have broken down in the way they did in that pandemic season when I think fatigue and a lack of time to put it right was, was pretty obviously the, the cause. So this might be to do with the age profile of the squad, which I think we knew was getting older. It might be to do with new players coming in, not quite settling yet. It might just be to do with the fact that Liverpool played an unprecedented number of games last season uh, and a short pre-season, short close season. Um, everybody's still worn out. It might be to do with the fact with Jürgen Klopp's in his eighth year at the club and, and eventually the the impact of a manager starts to wear off and no matter how charismatic he is, players start to, start to drift a bit. And I think from the outside, it's very, very hard for us to know 
what combination of those factors it is. Jonathan, just on that on that fatigue you mentioned, like it's funny now that Liverpool are going to be one of these Premier League clubs with with essentially a month off Premier League action and um, the way the fixtures have, have panned out. Like, if you're Jurgen Klopp and in his position, it, do you reckon it's a good thing now that they're having this time to reset after a bad period, or is it a case that when you're playing that badly, you almost want the games to keep coming thick and fast in order to to correct things? No, I think this is good for them. I think this is really... I mean, it could cause problems down the line later in the season, but things are going pretty badly wrong. And and I think once you get on a spiral like that, it's pretty hard to arrest. Uh, they suddenly do have time to arrest that. So uh, I, I think I think this has probably worked out pretty well for them. It's funny even reading Jamie Carragher's comments in, in I think it was in his Telegraph column in the last day or two as well. Like, he's... He's talking about the obvious things in the Liverpool team, but he he mentioned James Milner as you did, Jonathan. But he also mentioned Roberto Firmino uh, starting big games for, for Liverpool this season. Like this is a man in the last year of his deal, obviously playing for either a new contract or a move elsewhere. But uh, like, I think Carragher's quote was that he he's been in decline for the last couple of years, Firmino, and and all of a sudden he finds himself in this position of starting big games for Liverpool. Like, would you be would you go along those kind of similar lines that Firmino is maybe lucky to be in the team or has have his performances so far this season maybe? merited that selection I, I think he's been one of their better players this season in a, in a pretty you know, ropey selection but I, I mean really who, who else is it you know, Darwin Nunez has, has been suspended and um, Jots has been injured so you know, in, in that central role there, there is nobody else and, and as I said I think he's he's actually done okay but but you're right he's he's been in decline for a couple of years and, and we saw his influence last season definitely he'd begun to, to wane Um but I mean, I think the, the the whole balance that forward line is problematic now. That you know, you had that front three that was so effective, and, and uh, yeah, the, the the attributes of Mane, Firmino, and Salah, they they made each other better, and they worked very well as a unit. Well, as, as soon as you begin to fiddle with that, you 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 damage the balance. So Salah, I think, really hasn't played well since the Cup of Nations. Now that might be the effect of the Cup of Nations that. That was a pretty um, difficult tournament for Egypt. I know they got to the final, but they played pretty horrible football. Uh, Salah was often very, very isolated, you know, up the pitch on the right, often 30, 40 yards of space around him, having to work very, very hard, pretty thanklessly, under huge amounts of pressure from Egyptian fans, Egyptian press. Um, and then to, to lose it on penalties in the final, and then to lose that World Cup playoff to, to also to send a goal on penalties... Uh, yeah, that that would take its toll. Um, I think if you look at his shots per game, the first half of last season, I, th- I think it was around about four point eight per game, and I think it's been something like two point eight since. Um, I, I don't have the figures here, but I, I remember looking it up last week, and it was something like that. It's been a dramatic fall off in his shots per game. Now that's, as I say, partly might be to do with him and his psychological, mental, physical state. But also, the other thing that happened in January was Luis Diaz came in. Now, Luis Diaz, I think by general consent, has done very well. He's settled very quickly. He, he's made a habit of scoring brilliant consolation goals. Um, but if you've got him on the left and you move Sadio Mane into the middle or Darwin Nunez as your centre-forward, that's a different profile of player to Jota or, or Firmino who would drop out and, and, and create space for Salah to go into. So Salah, of necessity, is having to play wider. He's not getting into the box as much. That in itself is probably enough to explain that drop off in shots per game, and and maybe he's sort of thinking, well, when he signed his new contract, was that really what he was signing up to—to to, to not be the main man up front anymore, but to be this auxiliary figure on the right rather than the, the sort of key figure in, in in that front three? So I, I think 
I think Liverpool is just in one of those situations where everywhere you look in the team, apart from probably Allison, there, there are issues, issues with the balance, issues with individuals. Uh, and, and that forward line, yeah, you can pick out Firmino and say that the fact he's playing suggests the injury problems they've got. You can look at Nunez getting himself suspended, which has frustrated everybody. I think there's been suggestions, um, certainly in Spain and Portugal, that, that Liverpool is starting to wonder whether he really was the player that, that they wanted. I think you look at Salah uh, and, and say that he's not playing particularly well. But you can do that in the midfield, you can do that in the in the defence as well. It's a, a mad uh, systems failure from start to finish, with, the, as you said, the exception of, of Alisson. Um, while there is a, a little bit of time here, there's also time for the team to stew in the difficulties. And, you know, Klopp is talking about the honesty that they've had. Sometimes that works, sometimes it doesn't. It's um, we're, we're, We seem to be at a hinge point anyway, where things could go really badly for the rest of the season. And, you know, when you list off the, the number of problems there are, you can fix one, but fixing them all at the same time is going to be very difficult, unless somehow Thiago wrestles the team into some kind of greatness on his own. Is that is that... Like, if I'm a Liverpool fan, my eggs are all in the, well, Thiago's back now, maybe he can start games for us. Well, I mean, yeah, Thiago, I think, is very necessary to give him a bit of guile through midfield and, and he can knit things together and just the way he holds possession can can help relieve pressure. So him coming back, not that you can rely on him, I think, to be fit for the rest of the season, I think that is a benefit. I, 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 think, I think, though... Um, when we talk about all the problems at Liverpool, they're all interrelated. So if you fix one, you do then start to fix others. And I think these things can, just as they can fall apart pretty quickly, I think, think they can probably be mended pretty quickly. Say Darwin Nunez suddenly gets on a run and, and scores, you know, I don't know, six goals in the next four games or something. Thiago knits things together. Um, Matip is is fit and, 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 and he and Van Dijk you know, re, reform that partnership that was so commanding then suddenly Alexander Arnold will look a better player and confidence will spread. And if James Milner's not having to play, that, that relieves a bit of pressure on midfield. So I, I, I think I think the thing with Liverpool, the way they play, and it's in many ways it's the beauty of how they play, is it is such a and I guess it's true of all all great teams at the moment, it's true of Manchester City as well. These are very fragile, very complex mechanisms. One thing goes wrong and it has a huge ripple effect. But equally, the opposite is true. That if you start to put them right, things can, I think, be mended pretty pretty quickly. Obviously, if they're all knackered, that's a different issue. Can three days rest actually help a team in the middle of the season enough to allow them to recover the energy that they seem to have been depleted? It's, it's very difficult for us to know. And I guess maybe at the end of the season, we'll find out a bit more about it too. But um, certainly, it's one of the most interesting case studies of the best team in world football over the last 18 months or one of the most exciting teams suddenly becoming very, uh, you know, ramshackle in in parts. That that game against Napoli was like one of those games that I think we're all going to remember for a very long period of time because it could really have been 7-1. Yeah, it it could have been. But I think what's really interesting is we've seen it before. I mean, don't don't forget this is a team that lost 7-2 to Aston Villa two seasons ago. So we we know that when when things go wrong for Liverpool, they can go really really badly wrong. Um, I, I, I think I, even more than City, well, no, actually much more than City, uh, Liverpool are a side who who really play on the edge, uh, and that's how they've um, overperformed in terms of their their spending. You know that, that's how they're able to to have, to have kept so close to City for so long. City, I think, have a few more built in safeguards. 
Um, that the, the, they can be a bit more cautious. They can hold possession. I think defensively they're a little bit more circumspect. Uh, whereas Liverpool, it's it's hell for leather. And, and, and if you're playing that high up the pitch and if you're playing with that level of intensity and you're trying to overwhelm teams with that intensity, if that intensity drops or if opponents can find holes within it, they yeah, they, they, there's not much defence there to break through. So yeah, we, we saw it collapse two years ago. We saw it put right again last year. So I, I, I don't think the situation is in any case, in any sense, terminal. Um, but it is fascinating that it's happening again. And you do wonder how often you can fix that, particularly when you're looking at this season and it's you know, just game after game after game after game for for months and months into the future. Jonathan, uh, just to touch on the, the, the cancellation of the, well, I know seven of the ten Premier League games go ahead this weekend, but uh, still we have those few fixtures cancelled. I know that the statements released uh, hinted at the policing issues and, and everything else. Um, like, I, I know you wrote, a, I think it was in Sports Illustrated, maybe you wrote during the week about the fact that you were in a cricket stadium, I think, when, when news were starting to filter through of, of, of the Queen's um, failing health. Uh, and you, po- you pointed out that maybe a sports stadium is the perfect place for people to pay tribute in their own in their own little ways um, like are, are you surprised now at this stage where we are looking at the games specifically cancelled this weekend maybe you can understand the Chelsea game at half past four on a Sunday evening the day before the funeral but then you have United Leeds at, in Manchester a couple of hundred miles uh, up the motorway being cancelled earlier on a Sunday as well so it's a bit of a bizarre one certainly people on this side of the the, uh, the sea are trying to make sense of it but, but what's your take on it from over there? Um, I think I think it's actually much more understandable this weekend than, than last. Last, I think there was, yeah, the, the you know, what I was talking about in that Sports Illustrated piece was, uh, I, I think an event like this, it's a national event, and a national event is probably best experienced in public, not not just sitting at home watching it on telly. And and I say this as somebody who is absolutely not a monarch, monarchist, um, but I, I was sort of. I mean, looking forward to is a terrible phrase, but I was sort of sitting there at the Oval watching the rain come down on Thursday, thinking, if the announcement comes this afternoon and I hear it over the tannoy at the Oval with other people and, and hear their reactions, that is going to be incredibly poignant and incredibly memorable. Uh, if I, you know, Watching the flag being lowered would have been incredibly poignant and incredibly memorable. Um, I, I, was, I, I was at the theatre last night and um, because it was a Royal Theatre, there was a minute silence and God Save the King played after that. And that normally would put my hackles up. But last night I was sort of, a, oh, actually, this is really moving and I will always remember that. And I think we could have had that in football last weekend. I think the policing issues make it unavoidable for certain games this weekend. I mean, I, yeah, South London at the moment um, is is just, just crazy. Uh, I was walking through Westminster and Pimlico last night. Um, so I actually went past Westminster Hall uh, just because that was where I was going, I wasn't going particularly to have a look. And there's barriers everywhere. There's police everywhere. They're talking about queues of maybe up to twenty miles long. Um, so obviously that that is a huge drain on policing resources. So I, I think Chelsea, in terms of proximity, plus the fact it's Chelsea Liverpool, obviously takes extra policing. I'm assuming the fact it's Manchester United leads, it's just a high high risk fixture. So maybe they have to move in. I, I don't know if they're moving, having to move police from Manchester down to London to, to cope with the crowds, or whether normally they move police from London up to Manchester to deal with a game like that. But I, I can understand that. And then the other game is is Brighton Palace, which. Was was it has been cancelled because of rail strikes, and now the rail strikes have been cancelled, but the game was already cancelled before that. So, 
that you know, that's a pre-existing complication that isn't really to do with the the, the funeral. So I, I think this weekend, the, yeah, the, the the issues of policing. I, I yeah, and I say this obviously, some people no great insight into how policing works, but I can understand that if 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 the police say no, look, we can't do this. Fair enough. I think the previous weekend was where the mistake was made. They, there are weekends, <clears throat> pardon me, later in um, March and April, which are kind of contingency weekends when most teams will be out of the FA Cup where they should be able to make up these fixtures. Do you think it's going to be a significant issue down the line? Or actually, you know, if, if, if we'd had a really cold snap and everything had been frozen out for 10 days, they would find a way to make these fixtures work. Well, I mean, this season of all seasons, I think it's going to be really difficult. I mean, I, I know there's the FA Cup weekends, but can you rely on Manchester United, Liverpool, Chelsea all being out of the FA Cup? Uh, yeah, I, I think there's a significant chance they all could still be in the FA Cup come quarterfinal weekend or semi-final weekend. So I, I think, you know, yes, that's a possibility, but you can't can't rely on that. This season, I, I just think we're seeing the, the 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 chaos of the schedule at, at, at the moment. There's just too much in it. That there's no wiggle room. There's no breathing space. The fact the Champions League is coming, yeah, you know, essentially six weeks in a row with an international break stuck in the middle of it. So all six games within within nine weeks. There's there's no space. There's no time to breathe. And what what happens if we do get a cold snap in January? What what happens if it, you know games are called off because of snow or because of frozen pitches? What what if the rail strikes? Um, Proliferate, which I think there's every chance they could. There's, there's nowhere to go, so I, I think you're sort of seeing the folly of a fixture, of a fixture list that is as rammed as it is. Quite apart from the impact on on footballers and and, and journalists. Let's be honest, we're all knackered as well. Um, yeah, if, if you have to build in space for some cancellations, because whether for weather, whether for politics, whether for world events, whatever. You know, games might have to be called off and you, you you want to keep it fair. You don't want teams going for a title or battling relegation, having to play three games in five days or something. We may well be on course for that uh, as the season goes on. There's one last thing I just wanted to ask you about um, from my perspective. You're in the middle of a, a discussion about um, what the definition of a counter-attack is at the moment. <laughs> uh, you've, you've opened a can of worms that maybe you didn't even think was a can of worms in the first place. Well, I... I yeah. So what what happened was I, w- I was saying the three goals Manchester United scored against Arsenal were not dissimilar to the sort of goals they scored on Oligon Solskjaer. And I slightly carelessly said counter-attacking goals. What I meant was goals in which you use quick forwards against a high line. But I, I don't think it's worth asking what is a counter-attack and indeed what is attacking. And I, I came up against this uh, a few years ago when Louis van Gaal was manager of Manchester United that Louis van Gaal would tell you his teams were very attacking because they always had the ball. So he would say they were proud if we got the ball, if we got the ball, by definition, we're attacking. Uh, I think it's more complicated than that. And you also see it with with people who uh, think, say, Germany at the 2010 World Cup, because they put four past England and put four past Argentina, oh, they're a great attacking side. They weren't. They were counter-attacking. They sat deep and they played on the break. They played in transition. But for some reason, the word counter-attack has this, um, or maybe not counter-attack, but counter-attacking. If you say you're a counter-attacking team, it's, it's, it's got this sort of moral quality of someone being slightly dubious, yeah. which I don't think there's any reason why that should be. There's, <laughs> there's fundamentally, there's two ways of playing, with the ball and without the ball. Well, and both are fine, for me. Uh, and, and your way of playing can be to try and draw the opposition on and hit the space behind them, or it can be to control possession and control the game that way and try and pick spaces in the way that, say, Spain did at the 2010-2012 World Cup, uh, World Cup and European Championship. 
Um, it can be exciting or not exciting, according to the team. But I, I just sort of think we... Attack is a very, very hard word to define in football. Um, I don't know if it's true or not. I saw on Twitter yesterday somebody was suggesting that it was the anniversary of the famous uh, Brian Clough, Don Revy um, thing. That yeah, it's uh, forty-eight years ago yesterday. Yeah, that's the, right. whole, the whole notion of uh, we're going to do it better. Um, well, yeah. you know, uh, well, we won't be counterattacking. We'll be controlling the game. It's like you know, Pep probably feels like there's a moral quality to not being a counterattacking team, but um, the rest of us, as mere mortals, surely we want to win. Yeah, well, I mean, and Clough wanted to win. I mean, look, look at his um, look at his far side that won the league. They they won four 0 away at Old Trafford. I think on was it Boxing Day, seventy seven. And there's a, there's a great interview with Peter Taylor after. Okay, if it wasn't Boxing Day, it was it was December time sometime. Uh, and there's a great interview with with Peter Taylor where somebody you know whoever's doing the interview says, "Oh yeah, that, what a brilliant dominant display." And Peter Taylor goes, "Well, you won't see that again this season." And yeah, they, they then just shut up shop, and they they draw an incredible number of games nil nil in the second half of that season because they've already got the lead and they're clinging onto it. So Clough was yeah for all this talk, he was quite happy to kind of um, draw games nil nil if it suited him. But he would do that not by sitting deep, but by holding possession. You look at how Forest won the European Cup; both finals were one nil. There's a lot of one nils, a lot of nil nils in in those European campaigns. So, yeah, he could talk about playing the game in a beautiful way and, and holding possession. Forest could be pretty tedious to watch at times as well. Uh, just finally for me, uh, Jonathan, <clears throat> you have the book uh, out recently, very recently, I think, on the, the, the lives of the, the two Charlton brothers, two brothers, the life and times of Bobby and Jackie Charlton. Like, some great anecdotes, and I know I was reading an interview you did there recently talking about the, the influence of Match of the Day coming on board in 64 and 65, and, and I guess how that catapulted football onto a bigger stage and that's probably something people of my generation don't appreciate enough maybe um, and I know you've spoken as well about the I think it was an on stage the BBC Sports Personality uh, one year where, where, where Jack spoke spoke very fondly about Bobby but uh, Jack is obviously someone especially who's, who's revered in this country for obvious reasons uh, were there any anecdotes or, or, or things you, you even learned yourself uh, about the two brothers over your, your time researching the book? Oh it was a huge amount I mean I, I think um, with figures who are as well known as that, but there's there's two slightly different things you're doing with the book, or three. So, so the thing I actually really wanted to do was to put them in a in a sort of socio political context because I realised actually they represent two different strands of British life or British and Irish life in the late 20th century. Um, the the Bobby very conservative, very sort of cautious. Jack much more radical, and I think Jack you you can see very much comes through that sort of mid-60s Howard Wilson, White Heap technology, you know, scientific systems-driven uh, innovation, um, whereas Bobby was much more of the old school, and, and that's reflected both in football and, and their wider personalities. Then you're also trying to find just new details. and, and um, So, I mean, a, a story that I, I certainly didn't know, and I, I suspect it's not particularly widely known, was when Bobby was manager of Preston, which didn't go well. You know, he's in, only in charge for two years. He, he got relegated, couldn't get promoted again. Uh, but the Preston didn't want to sack him. You know, the Preston board didn't want to be the board who sacked Bobby Charlton. So they they sort of contrived the situation to to force him to resign by selling a player called John Bird to to Newcastle. Um, and and the details of that and the the, the sort of the <laughs> slightly bonkers conspiracy. I mean, you know, it almost feels like a sitcom. These sort of um, 
you know, these, these business owners in Preston sort of running around trying to trying to manipulate this situation. And what makes it even better is John Bird, who went on, actually had a very good career at Newcastle. And he's now um, a gallery owner and painter. He's like, you know, an artist, a really interesting bloke in his own right. Um, so, all, you know, that was just stuff I didn't know. And then the, the other thing is going through the myths and actually sorting out what's true and what's not. Um, and, and, yeah, Jack is somebody who myths accumulate around and trying to work out what's true and what isn't is can be pretty difficult at times. But hopefully by talking to enough people, I've, I've managed to sort of uh, – sort of work my way through through those and get to get towards something closer to the truth. Well, hopefully you sell a gazillion copies of it, Jonathan. Great to have you with us this morning. Thanks a million. Cheers. Thank you very much. OTB AM. With Gillette. Get into your flow with the new Gillette Labs Razor with exfoliating bar.